It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheesman, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Slater, an associate professor at the Department of Political Science, University of Chicago, on his 2010 book, Ordering Power. Contentious Politics and Authoritarian Leviathans in Southeast Asia, published by Cambridge University Press. Although Ordering Power has been in print for a number of years, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk with its author. Few books on Southeast Asia cover so much ground, geographically, historically, and theoretically. Working across seven case studies, the book argues that existing theories of institutionalization don't account for regional variation in regime type. By tracing causal processes from the colonial period to the present day, it shows how internal conflicts occurring at critical moments of state building encourage the formation of elite protection pacts with a high degree of durability. Along the way, it draws together and engages with an expansive and diverse array of literature on Indonesia, Malaysia and the Philippines especially, as well as Burma, Singapore, South Vietnam and Thailand. Not surprisingly, ordering power has attracted a lot of attention and some criticism from scholars of the region, as we discuss in the interview. But whether you are already familiar with Slater's work or hearing about it for the first time, I think that you'll find what he has to say is very informative and insightful. I hope you enjoy the show. Today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, we're joining Dan Slater to discuss his book, Ordering Power, Contentious Politics and Authoritarian Leviathans in Southeast Asia. Dan, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Nick. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I wonder if you could begin by saying a little bit about how you came to write this book. Well, I guess the long story uh, really starts when you know I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin in the early 1990s. And luckily, Wisconsin has wonderful resources in Southeast Asian studies. And so as someone, you know, who was interested in, you know, really general questions of politics and development kind of around the, you know, around the Pacific Rim, as I probably would have called it at that point, you know, I had the option of, you know, taking Indonesian language classes and had the option of, you know, taking classes with people like uh, Al McCoy and Paul Hutchcroft and, uh, uh, you know, other people who were teaching uh, Southeast Asian history and politics. So... I was able to get an early exposure to, to the region. And then it was a few years, uh, I then went to the University of Washington and worked with uh, Daniel Lev, 
there on Indonesian politics. And he really, more than anyone, sort of shaped my interest in elite politics and, you know, the, the ways in which you, know, you just can't, uh, as, as fun as it can be to write about people who are challenging elites, that if you want to understand politics, you need to, to really take seriously elites and where they come from and really to take a historical perspective to elite politics. Um, now, now, Dan, or you know, Pak Dan Lev, was a lot more suspicious about comparisons, uh, cross-country comparisons, than, than I was. Uh, in fact, early on when I started this uh, this project, he uh, you know he asked what I was working on because I had moved on to to Emory University for my PhD, and uh, I was said I was interested in comparing uh, comparing democratization in Malaysia and Indonesia. To which he responded, "Well, that's one hell of a comparison." Uh, so that was sort of it built out from there, but the, the reason that was the focus was because I had the, the good fortune of being in Malaysia in 1998 uh, on a Fulbright Fellowship. And strangely, I, I went to Malaysia to study something completely different besides uh, questions of political regimes, authoritarianism, democratization. Uh, I actually went to do more of a political economy uh, project. But the financial crisis hit, and the phenomena I was interested in in terms of Malaysia's investments in the world and this kind of you know rapid growth economy and Malaysia trying to uh, become uh, sort of to punch above its weight in the world had sort of fallen by the wayside. And so uh, what happened, and so the research project sort of vanished upon my arrival. And what happened instead was, as anyone who knows about Malaysia in 1998, I arrived in February um, and I was there through November. So the last three months I was there were really in the heart of the political crisis, which was sparked by uh, the dismissal of uh, Anwar Ibrahim. And so... It was really at that moment and sort of witnessing that at close range in Kuala Lumpur at that point in time. And this was all, of course, right in the wake of, um, you know, viewing from just, you know, a few hundred miles away what had happened in Jakarta with the top lane of Suharto. And frankly, I was just, there was just a really basic puzzle to me in the wake of those events, which was that I had sort of been trained to believe that Indonesia was this brutal military regime, which would never accept democratization. And Malaysia was this, uh, it was a pseudo-democracy, or it was a quasi-democracy, or it was a soft authoritarian regime. And, you know, or in Harold Crouch's wonderful phrase, a repressive-responsive regime. So this is a regime that could use repression, but it would always respond as well. It would, you know, so when there were, uh, when there were protests or when there were concerns, they would actually seek to respond. And so based on my prior expectations, what happened in Malaysia with a real crackdown on protest and what happened in Indonesia with uh, the protests actually succeeding and toppling Suharto were just really the opposite of what I would have been led to, to believe. And so that was, that was the puzzle for me. I wanted to understand that better. And when I left Malaysia and started a PhD program in 1999, the motivation was very much to solve that puzzle. And so it started from that, uh, but... So then the question is, how does one do that? And my, my initial intuition was that it had something to do with state power. And partly that came from just uh, witnessing on the ground what the police presence looked like on the ground in Kuala Lumpur during the, the first months of, of Reformasi. Um, it came from having a sense of what social control looked like. And you know the time I'd spent in both countries really led me to believe that there was just a, a tighter level of, of, of control that the state apparatus had in Malaysia than in Indonesia. And that was not strictly a function of who was in power. That was not a 
Suharto versus Mahathir difference, that was a, you know, a Leviathan versus Leviathan comparison. And so I felt like, again, going back to my studies with Dan Lev and also with Joel Migdal at Washington, thinking about the history of the state would, might be a good way of getting some leverage on that question of, uh, of variation. And so that's sort of, so that was sort of the next step in the process. And what came from that was then so trying to understand where, uh, you know, where the state comes from, uh, trying to understand why we see variation in state power. And that led me to then the sort of the Charles Tilley arguments about external war. And so it, it kind of occurred to me that in, in, uh, you know, the countries I knew best in Southeast Asia, you know, Indonesia and Malaysia, it really seemed that it had been internal conflicts that had led to, to state building. And, you know, if we think about 1965 in Indonesia, we think about 1969 in Malaysia, although the more research I did, the more I came to realize that even earlier bouts of conflict, I think, mattered a great deal, uh, perhaps even if, you know, similarly, if not even more. Um, and so that then raised the question of, okay, well, internal conflicts, and that just then begged the question of, well, to, if it's in fact true that uh, these kind of, these intense uh Internal conflicts led to strong, you know, strong state building in these countries, and authoritarian regimes sort of were born in tandem with with that state building. Uh, you know, why why does the rest of the region look so different? It's obviously, you know, it, it seemed ridiculous to claim that well, South Vietnam didn't have enough conflict, or uh, you know, Burma hasn't had enough internal conflict. And it was really from that that the notion that it was different types of conflict, different types and timing of, of internal conflict or contentious politics, as I put it, uh, that led to variation in the you know the the, the the two outcomes at least at first that really interested me, which were why we see the variation in state capacity and in governance ability that we do, but also why we see such variation in the durability of authoritarian regimes. So that's in a, a somewhat skeletal way, kind of how the project uh, arose and emerged. And we'll get to some of the answers that you put forward to those questions shortly. But before we do that, um, you've introduced one of the, the key terms here in referring to Leviathan v. Leviathan, um, authoritarian Leviathans being part of the title of the book. Can you speak to, to that concept a little bit more and also to the title, the main title, Ordering Power, because this term has a particular meaning, a particular connotation in the book. That's right. Well, I guess we'll start with the main title. So Ordering Power uh, was very much, it was an, it was an attempt through the, the, the notion of ordering to, to capture, uh, to really capture two things. Uh, order in the sense of to, to command. You know, I order you to cease this podcast. I order you to stop listening to this podcast. So we, 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 we command people, we order people, but also ordering in the sense of organizing. Uh, and so what, what ultimately I concluded was that we can talk in a formal term about different political institutions like the state or political parties or authoritarian regimes. But at the end of the day, what was really going on was were shifts in power. And the question really becomes, when do those who hold political authority when are they able to command different power resources from society? And when can they organize those sources of power uh, to be able to put them to use for purposes of governance and for maintaining their own incumbency and power? So to me, it's a, it's a book very much about power. And then ordering was a nice way, I thought, of capturing both the, 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 two, the two steps that were required, both to, to, to command, uh, so tax revenue, for instance, 
to command uh, acquiescence from uh, religious elites, to command um, you know, different kinds of support from the middle classes, for instance, right? Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of, there's a command relationship that goes into building a durable authoritarian regime and to building the state under under those kinds of conditions. But really, ultimately, it, those resources you know then have to be have to be uh, organized. Uh, you know, to be, to be put to use. So this is not a story. This is, this is emphatically not a story of great men. This is not a story of, of Lee Kuan Yew's brilliance and Mahathir Muhammad's, uh, you know, steely will and Suharto's, uh, uh, you know, something about his uh, particularly uh, mercurial personality and style of governance. Like, this is not the story that, that I tell here. The, the, the story is one in which, as a result of these different conflicts that occurred, there were coalitions in place, elite coalitions, so which includes not just you know, political elites, but also religious elites, nationalist elites, middle class actors uh, as well, where they all are all brought into coalition with a, a regime which wants to build a stronger state. So they become um, not just acquiescent to, but also in some ways actively supportive of the building of a stronger um political state as well as a strong authoritarian regime. And that's where the idea of authoritarian Leviathan comes from. So it's, it's the concept was really meant in a couple of ways. Uh, One was to capture the fact that it's really essentially to, to hitch up the regime to the state that it commands, that it, that it runs, that the regime is not just a group of individuals who have so, so much influence over certain people and certain issue areas. There, there is a state apparatus which endures and which different regimes come to power to, to seize control of. And so what, what was enduring in Malaysia or in Singapore um, you know, it was very much a, an authoritarian leviathan. Uh, it was, you know, an authoritarian regime which was wedded to the state in a certain way that it could draw upon that state, particularly the financial resources of the state, uh, the well-organized and compliant uh, coercive apparatus of, of the state. And so I wanted to, to make sure that when the, the message of the concept authoritarian leviathans is you, an authoritarian regime is not only an authoritarian regime. It is also it, it's wedded to the state in a way that has to be taken seriously. And when it's when it's married to a state apparatus that is much weaker, you're going to have a regime that is not able to accomplish the same kinds of things. So it also, of course, invokes uh, invokes the, the great theorist Hobbes, uh, who is sort of a very you know, a, a deep influence because for for Hobbes. You know, why does the state arise? Why do, you know, elites, why are they willing to give up their freedoms um, in a political order that could be quite tyrannical at times? And the answer is for purposes of self-protection, right? So the argument then is not to treat that as universal, but to treat that as a question of comparative politics, as a matter of variation. That variation in the in the felt need for and the urgency and imperative of self protection and collective protection among these elites could lead then to variation in what Hobbes thought was sort of uh, you know kind of this universal this uh, this this state this Leviathan which is for him was always legitimate uh, because we'd be lost without it essentially that's his argument uh, well that as I found in places like the Philippines and in Thailand people didn't feel they would be lost without these authoritarian and Leviathans. And that's a big part of the reason why they mobilized and felt like they were 
they would actually be safer without authoritarianism than they were with it, which is sort of the opposite, I think, of the calculation that was happening in Indonesia for a long time. Uh, I think many people in Malaysia and Singapore still hold to, but I think a declining, a, a, an importantly declining percentage of the population still holds to, to that view. And just one more point I'll say about that is that I wanted to correct the idea, I think kind of an insulting idea, frankly, that people support authoritarian regimes because uh, they deliver the goods, because essentially out of greed. You know, as long as I'm getting my 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 my, my daily bread, and as long as I'm uh, you know, as long as the regime is providing me with material benefits, of course I support the regime. But the problem is, of course, many there are all kinds of places where economies can be strong, but people do mobilize against authoritarian regimes. And so, to me, it um, in some ways helps recuperate. Um, populations in in these countries to say, you know, th- there are actual historical reasons why people have come to support these regimes, and this isn't about foolishness, and this isn't about people being, uh, you know, being duped by you know greedy officials who can trick them, you know, as, as much as they wish. Um, th- th- these were the regimes we see in, especially Singapore, Malaysia, and then the New Order, were in in ways they were, I mean, brutal, horrific excessively gratuitously violent apparatuses in, in many times, especially in Indonesia. But it doesn't mean that people didn't support them for no reason or that they did so out of greed or expectation that they would benefit materially. And so, again, to go back to Hobbes and the idea of authoritarian Leviathan is to say that it's for purposes of protection. And I think all of us can um, recognize the idea of being willing to accept certain controls, certain uh, government interventions when... When, when personal protection is on the line. And so in that way, I wanted to you know, de-exoticize, if you will, um, Southeast Asia. Think about what's, for all its particularities, what's universal? What, in what ways do these regimes capture something that is actually universal to the human political condition? With all their variation, right? So it, it's, it's the variations on that theme. But I wanted to find that common theme uh, in which to explore these variations within Southeast Asia. Now, you've emphasized um, self-protection as, as a key feature of how elite coalitions um, form and organize, coalesce. Can you speak to the notion of protection packs? That's also an important part of the argument that you make as distinct from provision packs. And to also include one more element in the discussion, um, who or what constitutes an elite Right, right. So the argument I make is really, I have a very expansive view of who counts as an elite in, uh, in, uh, in, in ordering power. And, and so, as I mentioned, I, I do include middle class groups in it. I do uh, certainly economic elites, uh, you know, certainly the you know, political ruling elites, and then also what I call communal elites or you know, relig- those who have the most religious or uh, you know, religious authority or who have the strongest claim to uh, the mantle of nationalist legitimacy uh, in a polity, which varies, you know, which, which varies greatly in places like Burma and Indonesia, where obviously the military um, you know, sort of stakes this, this claim to a place like the Philippines, where the, the church uh, obviously plays a very important role. And then these become the big actors in, uh, in, uh, in democratic mobilization. 
And so, so when that's sort of the end point, right? These, how do these regimes fall? And at least in, in, in this book, my view was regimes fall because of, of mobilization. Um, you know, if just you getting hundreds of thousands of people together who can, you know, basically make the country ungovernable unless uh, a regime gives way. And so the argument I make is that's only really possible where, you know, so first of all, that, that requires a cross-class coalition, right? You, you don't have hundreds of thousands of people in the street unless the middle classes are part of that equation. So what makes the middle classes so available, if you will, to those kinds of democratic protests? What makes them not entirely uh, wedded to, dependent upon, uh, you know, feeling that they can't do without uh, an incumbent authoritarian regime. And so that's where, you know, the argument of protection pact comes in. Uh, and so it's only where these groups have really has a historical experience with contentious politics with, you know, with, you know, threats, particularly from below threats from, you know, leftist groups demanding uh, redistribution and especially where those, those leftist, uh, this is the cold war, right? So these leftist demands, especially where they intertwined with, uh, communal tensions, uh, ethnic tensions, religious tensions, that that's what really, those kinds of conflicts are what brings all these different types of elites, right? I mean, incredibly heterogeneous sets of, of people. It's that kind of conflict that can bring them together into a protection pact. And what that really means is that the powers that they have, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, remunerative power. So they're the money they have for, you know, for tax payments, for, uh, campaign finance, for authoritarian ruling parties, uh, you know, you, even the pain of dues to authoritarian ruling parties, those kinds of resources can be again, ordered. They can be extracted, um, you know, from, uh, you know, from these, these elites when they again, feel like, and, you know, th- their experience, before the rise of that authoritarian system was one of instability, was one of insecurity. And it's really about that, that variation. It's the, I really believe people's historical lived experience is just so vital to their political attitudes, behaviors, what have you. I don't think that, you know, there's no political man that is uniform in any, in any way at all. And I think that the experience of those kinds of conflicts, uh, you know, makes, one in society and, and also within the political elite more willing to give up maybe their, their first best preferred options, uh, you know, paying low taxes. If you're wealthy, um, you know, jumping to the top of the party hierarchy, if you're a party cadre, uh, you know, to, you know, rise to the highest ranks within the military. If you're a colonel, you know, these are all things that when there is a shared sense that the, that the current, form of the state and regime are essential to keep society from coming apart. And if that view is in fact widely shared and there's some, there's some kind of objective historical basis for that claim, then you're more likely to have this kind of, again, protection pact underpinning the regime. The idea is that when that's absent uh, or when it decays over time, as I argue, they do decay over time, that then you get what's really a provision pact. And that's what I was suggesting earlier about people who will support an authoritarian regime as long as it delivers the goods. And as soon as you have an economic crisis, then, you know, uh, basically support evaporates. And I think this is kind of the stylized view, the predominant view of authoritarian regimes in American political science. I think it's the predominant view, um, you know, in the policy community, you know, among journalists, that's sort of what we think these regimes are is they're just basically, you know, enormous co-optation machines. They buy people off, uh, 
and, and that's, that does happen. And, but those are provision pacts and, a, and an authoritarian regime built on a provision pact, such as, you know, the Marcos regime from the very get go, uh, the Sarit regime in, in Thailand, just to take two prime examples. Uh, and really the, the Suharto regime by the time it, uh, it collapsed. I mean, these were, these were regimes that really had nothing left except for delivering the goods. And then when you do get an economic crisis in a place like Indonesia, uh, then there really was nothing left. Whereas in Malaysia, very similar economic crisis in, in many ways, uh, at least at the, at the outset of it. it. It ended up not being as bad for reasons that have to do with things that I emphasized, you know, different kinds of state capacity. But when, even when the economy was, you know, in a tailspin in Malaysia, you know, the, the ruling party, UMNO, the ruling coalition, the Barisan National, the National Front, they had something else. They had something other than the goods. They also had this history of, and, and really, I think, a credible, a credible historical claim. I think it's broadly viewed as a plausible, credible claim to have, have bridled and handled, uh, you know, very serious, very real urban conflicts, uh, leftist conflicts, and ethnic conflicts in the past. And so that gives another kind of, uh, another basis for a narrative of legitimacy, um, which by the time, um, you know, the Suharto regime fell and certainly the Marcos regime, they, they simply didn't have that anymore. And so if you want to understand the durability of authoritarian regimes and why it varies, it's, you have to look historically. You can't just take a snapshot toward the end and say, well, is the economy strong? Uh, is the economy weak? You have to go back and say, was this regime built as a protection pact in the first place or a provision pact? And those have very different implications down the road. Now, you track the uh, movement of, well, you track variation over seven cases. And right. among those seven cases, there are three that you concentrate on to discuss the historical causal processes You've mentioned already Malaysia, Philippines, and Indonesia. I wonder if we can go into that aspect of the book a little bit more, maybe um, talk us through one or another of those cases, um, the pre-war nation building, um, then into the Second World War. You emphasize that period very much in terms of mobilization and counter-mobilization, um, a violence in the post-colonies and coming forward to the present day. Right. Well, where to begin, right? Um, so the reason, so the, there's, as you say, there are seven cases discussed in, in, in the book, uh, all in Southeast Asia, but I focus on three. And the reason I focus on three, um, one, one reason is that Malaysia and Indonesia are just, they're just the countries I know best and they're the countries that I was most comfortable, you know, um, discussing. So there's, there's that kind of personal side to it. But the, 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 the analytical rationale was that all those three cases were instances of what I see as three different trajectories. Okay. And the idea is that we have, there's a lot of, there's been a lot written in political science, sociology, history about revolutionary regimes and social revolutions, political revolutions. And so, you know, places like China, places like Vietnam, they've had, you know, these revolutions and people argue that these revolutions build, especially strong, durable authoritarian regimes. And there's, you know, I, I think there is something to that argument. Uh, but what I felt people weren't theorizing were counter-revolutions. Uh, and so what about regimes that arise uh, in response? So when the revolutions lose, uh, you know, and when the revolutions are defeated, what's left? Like, 
what kind of regime gets built by those who can defeat revolutions, uh, or you know, if not full-blown revolution, at least serious, uh, serious mobilization. And that could be leftist mobilization in most cases, but it can also be regional and separatist mobilization. And that then points toward these three trajectories. So what I argue is that the, the three counter-revolutionary trajectories, there's, there's one of, of domination, there's one of fragmentation, and then there's one of militarization. And so the domination trajectory, Malaysia and Singapore are the really are the are the clearest cases of that. And those arose uh, you know, in response to particular types of contentious politics at particular, you know, historical moments. Um, so before the introduction, before the building of an authoritarian Leviathan, which are these, as I've just des- I've described them, these regimes and states that are intertwined, but also the idea is these are regimes that at least purport to being permanent. These these aren't uh, caretaker regimes that are just trying to stabilize things for a couple of years while uh, you know while things can be sorted out and democracy can be returned. So the argument is that when you know when leftist conflict there was radical leftist mobilization that impacted urban areas and exacerbated communal conflicts that then you can have the kind of protection pact that gives you uh, the domination trajectory, right? And that gives you strong political parties, uh, a strong coercive apparatus, a strong state more generally, and then a durable authoritarian regime. Um, the fragmentation trajectory then is really when, when you don't have those kinds of conflict, where conflict was more, uh, more temporary, it was maybe more rural, so more distant from uh, urban elites uh, at least, uh, or where, you know, there's not a, a sense of um, of, it, of it exacerbating communal, ethnic, religious tensions, and in that case, I argue that elites remain fragmented, and that's kind of a key point. Is I I begin the book with the assumption that in ordinary times, elites are fragmented. Elites are not cohesive. They're going to be divided along all kinds of factional lines. Um, and just to speak to the Philippines a little bit, what part of where this idea came from. So the Philippines to me is the consummate case of fragmentation because think about the Philippines, you could say, well, why are political parties weak in the Philippines? Okay. You can also say, why is the state weak in the Philippines? You can say, why is the military so, uh, you know, historically divided and factionalized in the Philippines? You can say, why did authoritarian regimes, you know, not be able to gain their footing in the Philippines? And what you realize is all of these things go in tandem. And I would say the same thing about Thailand, right? You can say, why are Thai party weak? parties weak? Why is the Thai state, it's stronger than the Philippines to be sure, but um, why is the military in Thailand so chronically factionalized and fragmented? And what I realized was that there, all of these different institutions, they all have a common coalitional underpinning, which is, you know, whether elites act collectively or not. And, and part of where this intuition came from was actually, I think it's very useful when you're a, you know, when you're a graduate student to teach the politics of Southeast Asia. So again, I didn't know much about the Philippines or about Thailand when I started my PhD program, but I had to teach about them. And one of the first things I realized when doing that was there weren't, there weren't very many acronyms. You know, as someone who studied Malaysian politics and Indonesian politics, the way you study politics is you learn the acronyms, you know, especially in Malaysia, definitely in Singapore as well, because acronyms are political organizations, right? In places like the Philippines, there just aren't, you know, where's the alphabet soup? Where are the acronyms that organize politics? And so the idea is in this fragmentation trajectory, which to me was Philippines, Thailand, and South Vietnam, uh, in all of those cases, it wasn't just, you could take these institutions one at a time and explain state weakness and explain, you know, authoritarian regime weakness and explain party weakness separately, but they all seem to have the same source to me. And that was something that was only done through the research. I didn't really... I didn't come to graduate school with some grand theory of how these all these things come about. It just 
it just the, the the tumblers kind of fell into place that once I started looking at coalitions, then you could just see the ways in which all of these different outcomes seem to to coincide. So then the third trajectory then is militarization. And the argument there is that this is this arises not so much from leftist uh, insurgency, but from separatist insurgency, from uh, regional rebellions. Um, and the logic there is that when when rebellions take place far from the from the nation's capital, where the political elite resides, and when their goal is really to separate from the uh, separate from the polity, rather than making you know demands to either trying to overthrow the polity or to uh, impose like much steeper taxation, for instance, on on the wealthy, it's it's just a lower concern. So separatist rebellion, regional rebellion, is just a less immediate. Uh, operational concern to political elites than to military officers who have to actually have to fight these these wars. So my argument was that regional rebellions, that the logic of it is that regional rebellions are, are kind of a perfect occasion for military and civilian elites to become divided and for the military to think of civilian elites as unhelpful and as, uh, you know, selling out the nation and, you know, letting them die without proper support and what have you. And really that's where Indonesia and Burma come in. And what was interesting for me was, as someone who knew very little about Burma when I started the project, uh, but knew a fair amount about Indonesia, Burma really helped me understand Indonesia better. Because at some level, one could say, well, Indonesia and Malaysia are comparable. That was kind of my starting point, right? Well, 1965, the new order is born in Indonesia amid all this violence. 1969, the... uh, you know the uh, you know the National Front authoritarian regime in Malaysia is born among this this kind of violence. So they both could look like domination trajectories in a certain way. But the key is that in Indonesia, and it didn't really strike me until I put it next to Burma and thought about it in comparison with Burma, was that before you had 1965, you had you know 1945, you had 1955, 57, you had regional rebellions. Um, and the military had moved to a central role in Indonesian political life before you had a protection pact, which really arose in 1965, 1966. And that was not the case in Malaysia. So in Indonesia, over time, you get different kinds of... So really, Indonesia, you get both the regional rebellions earlier on, especially in the 1950s, and then you get the leftist uh, uprising, if you will, in the 1960s, and then what you get, that historical sequence makes an enormous difference. Because what it meant was that when the protection pact arose, and when religious elites and nationalist elites and economic elites and the middle classes all sort of gathered under the umbrella of this authoritarian, this right-wing counter-revolutionary authoritarian regime, which which built a much stronger state, when they all, um, you know, when they all came together, the military was still was the first among equals very much unlike in Malaysia. And down the road, the, the differences between military and civilian elites in Indonesia mattered in a way that in Malaysia it really doesn't, because the military in Malaysia is an utterly inert political actor. It's a, non, it's a non-factor in Malaysian politics, because the party is where the, power, where the power is. And so, ultimately, the idea was that, you know, take these three trajectories, take one case from each, so I could do it try to do at least a little bit of historical justice to it because it's only a book and, you know, I didn't have my whole life to finish it. So it was a way to make it manageable, uh, but hopefully capture the basic, the overall variation, the overall divergence in a way that then would, you could then read the, the next four cases, you know, Singapore, South Vietnam, uh, Thailand, and Burma through the lens of these trajectories and through the, the three cases I'd done in some more depth. So that was the strategy for laying out, you know, what's, 
at the end of the day, is a seven. It's a it's a long historical study. I mean, long for for American political scientists anyway. I mean, it does start before World War II uh, and does go up to the the contemporary period. Seven countries, and it's really looking at you know, depending on how you count, three or four political outcomes. So how is that manageable in a book? Well, one way is to to focus in on on a smaller handful of, of cases and try to just be very disciplined in speaking to your topic and not pr- pretend to be writing a thoroughgoing history of. I mean, it's not, my book is not a thoroughgoing Indonesian political history or Malaysian political history, and it certainly isn't, uh, you know, it, it's the furthest thing from, the, you know, the, the main book you should read if you want to read about Thailand or the Philippines or, or Burma uh, or South Vietnam. I hope it sheds light on those cases, but it's, it, it, it's certainly not thorough, and I couldn't possibly imagine uh, or, or, or pretend to be. You've done a great job of, of talking us through these trajectories and also offering some excellent advice to would-be authors on the side. Um, one aspect of the work that I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that perhaps you, you haven't emphasized is how the type and timing of contentious politics is a key determinant of these the outcomes that you've been describing. Can you speak a little bit more to that aspect of the work and that perhaps also will emphasize why the, the contentious politics literature is so important and useful for you. Right. So the part of what I, what I was trying to do is, so contentious politics is this concept. Um, I mean, some people have said it's a little bit, it's a little bit trendy or maybe it wasn't the best concept to have used that I should have just said social conflict or mass mobilization or those kinds of things. Um, but this is, this is a term that mostly is, sociologists as well as political scientists have been using. So uh, Charles Tilley, Douglas McAdam, uh, Sidney Tarot kind of sort of launched this research agenda on contentious politics. And their, their point was, well, revolutions, social movements, protests, riots, they're all, they're not the same thing, but they're, they're the same family of thing, if you will, and this idea of contentious politics. But what I'd realized was that, you know, contentious politics is basically always an outcome. Of interest, people want to explain why. Why are there riots? Why was there civil war? Why did protests break out? Uh, you, know, you know, why was there a revolution? And and what struck me is people seem very uninterested and unfocused on the question of what contentious politics causes. Because again, if we think that uh, elites are very largely driven by, motored by, motivated by different kinds of threats that they face and trying to manage those threats, then it seems like contentious politics is a pretty good place to, to look and think about, uh, you know, something that would, could help shape authoritarian regimes and, and, and state itself in, in very different ways. So again, when I kind of the seed of the project was just sort of thinking about, you know, things I'd read in historical sociology and saying, it was giving me a language for why 1965 meant so much in Indonesia and why 1969 meant so much in Malaysia. Like I wanted a way to say that that wasn't only dependent upon the proper names involved. Like what, what were those cases of? And that's kind of what comparative politics, I think, tries to do is take, take cases very, very seriously, but also think about what the cases are cases of. And so contentious politics seemed like a pretty good way to start. And the more I thought through the other cases and looked at the very, I mean, the, the kinds of conflict are, are immensely different and diverse across the region. That's, that's sort of my point. Uh, and, and that gives you very different sorts of, sorts of outcomes. So what I wanted to argue against here was the idea that 
or the kind of initial intuitive idea that really levels of conflict, degree of conflict, severity of conflict should then give you in some straightforward manner different kinds of outcomes. Because, if, again, let's go back to 1965 in Indonesia, 1969 in Malaysia. In terms of severity, these are not even in the same, they're, they're, they're really not even in the same family. I mean, one is practically genocidal. One was, you know, basically a, you know, one night of, you know, one night of bloodletting. Um, so how could these be comparable? Um, well, they're comparable not in their severity. They're comparable in the types of conflict they were in, in certain respects and in the, in the timing. And the idea in terms of the type, again, so that what, what 1969, May 13th, 1969 in, Kuala Lumpur and 1965, you know, October and then on in Indonesia is that both these were conflicts where, um, elites, elites in urban areas did not feel safe. Uh, they were conflicts that triggered much deeper, uh, and more seemingly unsolvable problems of, of ethnic difference. Um, these were moments when people, the people that the group from the, the predominant religious uh, community, um, people from, you know, and the political elite really did have reason to believe that these things could be toppled, uh, that they, that their, their, their position could be, you know, could be upended. And so that's what, so in terms of type, that's why for their incredibly different conflict, uh, excuse me, incredibly different sorts of scales, that there was a similarity in type. And in Malaysia, of course, it matters a great deal that the conflicts of 1969 in some ways really, really mirrored or echoed the conflicts of the 1940s, where again, there was this perceived, you know, ethnic Chinese minority bid for power, uh, with, with sort of chilling implications for what that meant for the, you know, for, for a, a country where Malays are by definition, uh, Muslims and where sovereignty is seen to, to reside in, in these, uh, you know, in these hereditary, Sultans, who are the sort of the, the heads of both of both state and religion, at least uh, at least symbolically, and so the type really matters in that in that kind of way. And then in terms of the timing, the, the critical issue there is whether these con- kinds of conflicts, whether they precede or if they follow the establishment of these authoritarian leviathans. And the, the intuition there is is pretty simple, to the extent that a national nightmare occurs. That's what these really are. These are national nightmares in a sense. To the extent that national nightmares occur under some kind of pluralistic government, which then gets wiped away and then an authoritarian regime comes along and stabilizes things, that is a completely different political valence or just totally different political implications than if those kinds of conflicts, those kinds of nightmares erupt under authoritarian conditions. Because the question is who gets, who gets blamed? On whose watch does this occur? When, when elites, and by this again, I include middle classes, just educated, you can think of university students, you know, when elites think about how do we build a stable, secure political system in this country, and they think historically, what is the track record of democracy? What is the track record of authoritarian regimes? And these things are not, I don't think they're all that contested, even. I think it's pretty clear, actually, um, Certainly people manipulate these things and they, you know, they make things up. But ultimately, there, there is a relatively, I don't want to go too far to say objective, but there is a different historical record under these different regime types. And so 
it matters that these kinds of contentious politics erupt before the advent of an authoritarian Leviathan, because if they erupt afterwards, then authoritarianism gets part of the blame uh, for instability. Ultimately, what I think people at the most core, what people want or what they most fear is insecurity and instability, kind of back to Hobbes, right? Um, and so when people make, you know, they're not just reading propaganda, they're making relative assessments based on their historical experience. And in places where authoritarian rule basically was like fuel on a fire, uh, as in when Marcos uh, declares martial law, you know, political elites, you know, economic elites, religious elites, they recognize that. They, they can see that. And they realize that democracy, both there, both in the Philippines and in, and in Thailand, was not associated with instability and was not, I mean, certainly, I mean, political instability in the sense that democracies are often quite messy, but not in the sense of, of, of grave, uh, you know, personal, personal, uh, uh, personal threat, in any sense of personal endangerment. So that's why I think the timing matters as well as the type. And the argument was really to say, I'm sure all is equal. The bigger the conflict, the more it in- impact it has. But this is why in a place like South Vietnam, for instance, or like Burma, in no way in the world is it my argument that, well, there just wasn't enough conflict. And that would be, and that would be completely insane. But that's actually kind of what the literature said when I started this project, which is that well, if you want to understand why there are weak states in, you know, in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, it's because of a, an absence or a lack of, of war, and war builds the state. And part of what I wanted to say was, well, first of all, internal conflict, they don't have to be wars, but internal conflicts, as well as external wars, do in fact build the state, but not any old kind of conflict. It depends on the, you know, again, on the type and the timing, and the even the most conflicts of the wrong type. So for instance, a pure ethnic conflict with no class dimension to it. There's no reason to believe that would lead to state building, uh, in my opinion, or very little because ultimately elites are divided over the conflict. But the issue is do conflicts lead elites to act collectively? Uh, and that kind of requires, um, in the strongest cases, a, you know, a sort of a bottom up, uh, redistributive kind of, uh, demands to be, to be underpinning it. So it's sort of an alternative argument to say, well, it's just size of conflict that matters. Southeast Asia, which I take very seriously as a region, and I wanted this to be a book that made sense of Southeast Asia for those of us who study the region, uh, that was at least, it was actually more important to me than to come up with a theory that was going to travel. Uh, it, I had to come up with an argument that was was true to that kind of variation. And so, I, again, it's not, I did not, start my PhD program thinking I was going to write a, a dissertation and eventually a book about seven countries. I wouldn't have believed you if you told me that. I thought, well, I'll try Malaysia, Indonesia. And as, as Dan Lev said, that was already one hell of a comparison. That was already more than enough to try to deal with. But again, if I was going to argue that internal conflict built states, I couldn't just ignore places like South Vietnam and Burma. I feel like I couldn't, it just wouldn't be, it just, it begged the question and it had to be addressed in some way. You do say that you you you, have, you weren't trying to write a book that would enable the arguments to travel, but you are you also say that you are speaking to problems of that are universal to a certain extent, um, and there's um, an element of contingent generalizability in the text, and so I wonder in the years um, since the book came out and the three or four years uh, since publication, what sort of discussions you've had with scholars of other regions, for instance, 
Africa and the Middle East, which you mentioned already. Um, to what extent do they see congruence or an absence of congruence in case studies from other parts of the world? And perhaps what other discussions have you had around the contents of the book um, that bringing you into the research that you're doing presently? So there have been two, I guess, very different kinds of communities of, of reaction and of, of conversation. So there's the, those within Southeast Asia and those those without, um, those in the, in the discipline more generally. So in the discipline more generally and those who work on other regions or who think theoretically about the, these things, I would say the books at this point, I think the book's impact has been pretty, pretty modest is, is my sense. Uh, people will say things to me like, you know, this is really, you know, this book makes really important claims and this is going to be a book that will last. And this is a book that, you know, and this is, these are nice things to hear. Um, but I think the argument has, again, cause I wanted to get the region right. I think the argument has a, has a density to it and has enough moving parts to it and is historically specific enough that it hasn't traveled easily. Um, People often will say, you know, that like, wow, th that intuition really makes sense in the Middle East or it makes sense in a case I can think of in Africa. But, um, you know, even I've had people say, you know, in the in, you know, in, in some of the post-Soviet areas that like, you know, th th this makes a this makes a great deal of sense. But I haven't really seen people um, run with it, if you will. And that might be partly a function of the fact that I wrote I wrote a book on Southeast Asia. I was 100% committed to writing a book on Southeast Asia. And I also, I didn't write an article that kind of put the argument in just kind of bare bones case, you know, stripped of case material form. And I think that's a, a, a big way to have an impact on broader communities. Is so to, if I had thought of a way that I could have made this argument in, you know, in 10,000 words and done justice to it, and I never did that. I didn't write an article um, on the, you know, that really captured the whole book. It's something that I think I might like to do at some point, not on the all the cases, but to sort of say something about, you know, why would we think contentious politics um, more generally leads to variation in regimes and states through elite collective action. I think it would be worth doing that. Um, and I think I probably will have to if I want this argument to really travel and to really uh, get a lot of a lot of purchase in in other regions so uh, people have been very you know, i've gotten a lot of supportive i think very i mean overwhelmingly supportive reactions from people who study other regions and who have thought of applying the argument to other regions no one has really said well this just doesn't make sense in other regions or you know this is fundamentally you know this couldn't possibly travel because it's so specific and so i would say it's been it's got it's received a very i think a warm welcome but i don't think it's been used all that much uh, you know, by my broader, you know, political science and sociology colleagues who work on similar questions in other parts of the world. It gets a citation, but doesn't necessarily get, uh, you know, have a huge influence on what people argue. Uh, within Southeast Asia, uh, I think the argument, I think the, the reaction has been, uh, has been more skeptical and has been more critical. For, for some people, uh, I think some people are, uh, gratified by or, you know, inspired in some way by the notion that these countries can be compared and that a comparative historical sociology, a comparative historical um, politics of Southeast Asia is in fact, you know, possible. Uh, you know, people who study Europe have always just assumed that it was. Um, and no one, people really weren't attempting it all that much in, in Southeast Asia. So I think pe a lot of people appreciate, and I think actually overwhelmingly people appreciate the attempt um, not, not universally, but I think that's the, the general reaction that I get. But 
I, I think there's been a lot of pushback, um, you know, on particular cases. You kind of expect this, I suppose. Um, certainly pushback, say, on, on South Vietnam to say this is, you know, this is really cramming a square peg into a round hole. And this is not, you know, South Vietnam is not mysterious because it's this American client and it's not really, uh, you know, a, a case worth putting in the same kind of kind of family. And so this all this diversity across the region, which is always stymied uh, comparative analysis, and which I try to deal with through deeper historical analysis and to say, well, you know, the pre-war period really made these countries you know, diverge in important ways. But I bring that into the argument by saying how that shaped what, uh, what kind of contentious politics you would have depended on nation building in the pre-World War, War II period. Um, there's been, I think, a sense that, uh, you know, that, that, some, that some of that not doing enough justice to particular cases for sure. I think the other main critique that's gotten uh, is not taking the global, the international context seriously enough. So one thing I wanted to do in the book was to make an argument that, uh, you know, the, 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 these, these states really are, are, have a lot of self-determination going on. They're not just the, the puppets of the, uh, you know, they're not just the outcome of, you know, American intervention, American Soviet rivalry and the like. And so I don't really theorize the, the international side of it terribly well. Uh, what I find is that uh, colonial elites or neo-colonial elites actually behave a lot like uh, local elites in terms of what kind of conflicts they see as threatening and the fact that they're they're not actually very committed to building strong institutions unless they're really afraid of losing things if they don't. Uh, so they're, they're present. So the interesting thing about the international side is the United States is all over this book. Uh, Japan is all over this book. Uh, Great Britain is all over this book, but they're, they're, they're not really anywhere theoretically. And so if you look in the index, you'll know uh, how much attention I pay to it, but it's not systematic in the way that it possibly could be. And, and hopefully someone could pick up the, the baton and try to do something that takes the international side, you know, treats it a little more systematically than I do here. So I think th those are some of the reactions I've gotten from within the, the Southeast Asianist community. And so, um, you know, and I think also, I guess one other thing I would say is that I think there are some, there are some pretty straightforward intuitions in the book, which, I actually think a more general readership and, a, and, a, and the policy community would find uh, potentially, you know, of interest and of some potential value. But the book is written; it, it's a, it is a very, of course, academic book, and so um, I don't know if I would call it a regret. Uh, you know, the book was obviously published in University Press. The, the, the book was for, you know, academic professional purposes. But I, I do think a, a little bit of a lighter touch um, could have, you know, given it a better reaction in certain ways, a better, uh, wider reception. And so those are things that I think, you know, there were, at, at best, I would say there were trade-offs at worst. I would say, you know, I have, I have at least some regrets that I didn't do a, a better job at uh, making it more accessible to a, to a wider readership than, than I did. And in terms of the substance of the arguments in the book, where has your own thinking gone in the interim? And perhaps you can bring us up to date in terms of what you're working on right now well the the interesting thing is that it, it took a couple of years for my my thinking to settle on this uh, I, I've written a fair amount about uh, 
about party politics in Indonesia and, and, and power sharing. And my assumption has always been the, you know, the second book I would write would be on that. Uh, and a very much more uh, drilling down into Indonesia and really doing a single case study uh, and asking the question of how political opposition is sort of have, has been struggling to emerge in uh, in a new democracy, and so that was sort of what I thought. But then what what actually ended up happening was uh, you know not about a year or so after this book came out, I was asked to write uh, an essay on uh, on Malaysia and Singapore for the uh, for a new edition of the Democracy in East Asia volume that Larry Diamond and Mark Platner uh, and I believe one other uh, co-author, co-editor, uh, have, have, they want to do a new edition of it. And in doing that, I, you know, it, it, it got me thinking about my book and about my cases in a little bit of a new way. And, and that was as follows. What ordering power basically shows you and tells you is that some authoritarian regimes have so much power. They, they, they have such a strong state behind them. And they have such a, you know, never a monopoly, but such a preponderance of, of, of sources of power over their opposition in society that they could essentially stay in power as long as they want. Um, and that's where ordering power ends. It, it tells you that if the PAP wants to stay in, in power in Singapore, if, if UMNO wants to stay in power in Malaysia, they can do it. But that left something unanswered, which was to say, well, do they necessarily need to? So ordering power talks about the capacity of authoritarian regimes. But as I thought about Malaysia and Singapore, you know, more specifically and think about what's next, it, it occurred to me we also should be thinking about what their what their incentives are to, to, to remain authoritarian. Because if we look at, at um, Southeast Asia and Northeast Asian perspective, and that's kind of where the, the first move I made, was to think about places like Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. And this is actually kind of the concluding remark of the book where I say, you know, you don't have to be authoritarian to be a Leviathan. Uh, you know, there are democratic Leviathans in the world too. You can have democracy and state power. They, those things didn't arise together in Southeast Asia, but they could have historically, and they still could go together. And basically, when thinking more about Malaysia and Singapore, from the perspective of you know, Taiwan, South Korea, you realize that if you know, these countries were just to pursue democratic form, reforms, level the playing field, stop repressing opposition, open up the media, let there be an independent election commission, if they did all those things that would really make them a procedural democracy, certainly the PAP in Singapore would keep winning elections. I think it's pretty fair to say for a while. And at least until recently, I think you'd say the same about the, the National Front and, and UMNO and in Malaysia. And in fact, I would argue it might even help them electorally to do that because they would, it would actually help them among urban middle classes who have just completely, I mean, very overwhelmingly abandoned the, uh, the authoritarian government in Malaysia. And so the, the argument was like, well, you could have democratic reform and still have stability. And in fact, these might, these ruling parties might even keep ruling, but just rule as like the KMT did in Taiwan. They democratized, but they, but they stayed in power. And so what, uh, what that spilled over into was then a, a really wonderful conversation uh, with, uh, with Joseph Wong at the University of Toronto, uh, who works on, uh, you know, on Northeast Asia and knows these cases well and has thought a lot about these issues. And we really we sort of realized that, in fact, when authoritarian regimes uh, step down, when they become democracies, a lot of times it's not so much because they're so weak, but because they also have sources of strength. And those sources of strength give them confidence that they can continue to compete and thrive under democratic conditions. And our initial thinking was, was, well, Taiwan and South Korea did that, and Singapore and Malaysia could do that, but haven't done that. 
but then it really struck me that even in Indonesia, where which seems like a you know a consummate case of an authoritarian regime that collapsed in a moment of weakness, you know, economic crisis, you know, it's a it's a classic. The dictator runs for the you know runs for the exits. But in terms of actually building up um, basic democratic institutions in Indonesia, that that was not just the fall of Suharto. That was what what you know Habibi did, and what Habibi's successors did, uh, and what the parliament did. Uh, you know, under the you know when when uh, Megawati when, when both uh, Abdurrahman Wahid and uh, Megawati Soekarnoputri were uh, were in charge, and you realize that a part of what made that possible, in fact, was uh, was Golkar, uh, and the fact that there was so Soharto was not gone; he was out of power, but Golkar was not out of power, and so even in a case like Indonesia, which seems like the classic case of a of a of a you know democracy through collapse. Even there, there's a way in which the strengths of this authoritarian ruling party, its territorial reach, its uh, its cross class support, meant that people within Golkar could be relatively confident that if elections were held, they would do relatively well. I think that was part of Habibi's calculation was that elections wouldn't mean elections having free fair elections did not mean handing over power. It meant we compete for power differently and try to stay in power in a different way. And what this has sort of grown into is, a, is you know, again, this is a, 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 a small idea about a couple of cases, which then you end up thinking about across the region. And so what uh, Joseph Wong and I are doing, we've published uh, one article on this, on this theme in the journal Perspectives on Politics, and we're going to you know, work on it. We, we have a book contract now on a book which is tentatively entitled Democracy Through Strength. And the idea is that throughout uh, Northeast, Southeast Asia, that contrary to political science expectations, that democracy is about the, you know, the complete collapse uh, through uh, weakness of an authoritarian regime, that actually the, the strength side of the coin is a big part of the story as well. And that um, particularly in Asia, but I think again, you know, particularly in Asia, but there's something a little bit more general going on. We need to understand the ways in which the, an authoritarian regime strength, especially the strength of their, their ruling party, gives it the capacity then to compete under democratic conditions. And so even while, and here's the paradox, even while a strong party and a strong state in authoritarian context gives a regime the capacity to hold on to power interminably, it also can ironically, paradoxically, give them the incentive to try to compete under democracy because they actually can compete under democracy. And so that's the paradox which I'm sort of exploring in the next book, but it really does grow out of ordering power in a kind of, it wasn't in an immediate way, but in a kind of organic way. When I go back and reread the conclusion in the last couple of paragraphs, you can kind of see ordering power setting the stage for that next project, even though when I, you know, in 2010, when I finished the book, I, that, that project was nowhere in sight. Dan Slater, thank you very much for, for speaking to us today about your book, Ordering Power, Contentious Politics and Authoritarian Leviathans in Southeast Asia. Well, it's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thanks for uh, still being interested even after four years. <laughs> well, I'm really hoping that we'll have the opportunity to get you back on to, to speak about the new book once it is out, and i um, really looking forward to that as well. And I'd also like to thank everyone for listening. I'm Nick Cheesman, and I look forward to having you online for the next interview with another author of a new book in Southeast Asian Studies. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.